So we're looking at Romans chapter 13 tonight. Next week we look at Romans chapter 14. And I don't know what we'll do after that. <laughs> but before I start, isn't it great news that Peter and Mel have found a home and that they'll soon be with us? That is such an answer to prayer, isn't it? And thank you to everybody who's been involved in, in helping them. Uh, and we really look forward to them coming. I don't know if there are any Monty Python fans here tonight. <laughs> um, I don't know if you remember that uh, that's a Monty Python sketch where the Jewish rebels are plotting to overthrow the Romans. I think it's in the life of Brian. What have the Romans ever done for us, the leader asks. And, and someone in the crowd pipes up, well, there's the aqueduct. And then someone says, and the roads. And someone else shouts out, sanitation. And so it goes on, irrigation, medicine, education, public baths, law and order, peace. All right, all right, says the leader. But apart from the aqueduct and the roads and the sanitation and irrigation and medicine and education and public baths and law and order and peace, what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> Quite a lot, actually. It, it, was those, it was these very things that led, humanly speaking, to the phenomenally rapid spread of the gospel around the world in those first three centuries. Safe travel. Good roads. People are still traveling on Roman roads all around Europe. Those roads are still crisscrossing the continent. Law and order. The, the famous Pax Romana, the peace, so that people could travel without fear of ambush. And someone's got to pay for all that, of course, haven't they? And you know who it is. It's you. It's the taxpayer. Nothing is more certain in this life, said Benjamin Franklin, than death and taxes. And that's so true, isn't it? You, you, you can't avoid the taxman any more than you're able to escape the grim reaper. The Beatles wrote a song about it. Um, if you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet, because I'm the taxman. Hey, hey, I'm the taxman. I could almost sing it to you now. So, so what does the gospel have to say to us about these things? What does the gospel have to say to us about our civic responsibilities? See, we're, we're citizens of two worlds, aren't we? According to the Bible, there, there are two ages. What the Bible calls this present evil age, which is passing away, and the age to come which has already begun. A lot of Christians don't understand this. The, the age to come has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as Christians, as believers, we have a foot in both camps, don't we? We live in the overlap between these two ages, between the now and, and the not yet. And, and the question is tonight, how do we navigate that? How do we live here in this world while we're looking and longing for the world to come? How do we uh, navigate our responsibilities as human beings between these two ages? Paul gives us three very clear directives to help us keep our, if I can put it this way, to keep our feet on the ground and our head in the clouds. I think that's what happened to me on Christmas Eve, actually. <laughs> 
I had my head in the clouds and my feet went on the ground for very long. <laughs> but it's good that we need to have our feet on the ground and our head in the clouds, don't we? See, so sometimes, you know, uh, I better explain what I mean by that because sometimes you've, I'm sure you've heard people say that Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. Nothing could be further from the truth. The opposite is true. The more heavenly minded you are, the more you have your head in the clouds, the more you're looking forward to the age to come and the values of that age and praying for that, the more uh, you're going to be of use here in this world. So here are Paul's three directives then to help us keep our feet on the ground and our head in the clouds. And this is how the chapter really uh, divides up. Here are his three, three directives. Look up, verses 1 to 7. Pay up, verses 8 to 10. And wake up, verses 11 to 14. So first of all, he tells us to look up. You might say, well, where do you see that there? Uh, well, you notice how he talks about, in those first seven verses, how he talks about the powers that be or the, the, the governments that exist. The, the authorities that, that exist, he says, have been established by God. And, and, and so everyone, he says, should be subject to the governing authorities. Now, now let, me, let me remind you that Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, where the governing authority is not Mother Teresa, the governing authority is Nero, who's a cross between uh, uh, Hitler and Stalin. Nero was the man who fiddled while Rome burned and then blamed it on the Christians. He's not a nice man. And that's the context here, you see. This is not, sometimes Christians have taken it this way, but this is not an academic treatise on the relationship between church and state. This is not a lecture on jurisprudence or a comparison of different political systems. This is a pastoral letter to Christians living under, under a totalitarian regime as bad as any that the world has ever seen. And you notice what he says? He doesn't say rebel, take up arms, overthrow the government. He doesn't say that, even though this is probably one of the worst rulers that ever lived. He says, submit. He, he doesn't say run, get out of town. He says, stay where you are. He doesn't say resist. He says, respect, respect. Now, I need to say this, Paul isn't naive about Roman cruelty and, and, and corruption. He's well aware of the dark side of, uh, of Roman rule. Just, just a few years before, in AD uh, 49, uh, the Emperor Claudius, who was uh, Nero's predecessor, had booted all the Jews out of Rome and, and decimated the church. Uh, imagine turning up to church you know, on the next Sunday to find that nearly all the congregation is gone. Because th th those... those that early church in Rome, it was mainly made up of Jewish believers, probably people who were converted on the day of Pentecost, and then went back to Rome with the gospel. And then fancied turning up the next Sunday, and they're all gone. They're not there anymore. And yet Paul insists, as a matter of conscience, he says, we should submit to the government that is there. It may not be the government you want, it may not be the government you voted for. But the point is this, bad government 
is better than no government at all. It's all that stands between us and anarchy. Now, for us, of course, it's not the Emperor Nero, it's Scott Morrison and Peter Gutwin and uh, that lovely lady behind the counter at Centrelink. They are God's servants, Paul says. <laughs> and he uses religious language. He says they're God's deacons. He uses the word deacon. Uh, he, he uses the word liturgist or priest. <laughs> they are God's servants, liturgists, deacons, for your good. So too is the taxman and the policeman. I don't know if you ever thought about that. And you're to give them the respect that is due to them. Now, I think this is very hard for us in Australia. We love to make fun of our politicians, don't we? It's almost like a national pastime. Uh, Australians, I think, have a real problem about respect for people in authority. Probably goes back to our convict days. But we need to repent of that. Because it's not godly. I've seen some of the things that some of you have written on Facebook about our politicians and laughed. But it's not a laughing matter. Not if we take Romans chapter 13 seriously. See, this is one of the places where the gospel critiques our culture. So Paul is saying, recognize that the powers that be are put there by God and you're to give them the honor and respect that is due to them. Look up, look beyond the, uh, the incidentals. Look up and recognize the ultimate authority behind all this. And, and, and realize that you you worship God, not just by singing hymns in church, but you worship God by fastening your seatbelt and, and, and keeping to the speed limit. Remember the, the, the context of this? This is Romans chapter 13. This is, Paul is beginning to apply the whole of Romans. Romans chapters 1 to 11, he's expounded the gospel. And then in Romans chapter 12, he's, he's going to show us what our proper resp response is to be to the gospel. He says, this is your... This is your your true and proper worship. You're to respect those whom, the, whom God has put in authority over you. So you worship God by uh, filling in your tax form and by voting in the next local elections and, not by, and, and, and by not rubbishing, rubbishing your elected leaders. This is your true and proper worship, Paul is saying in Romans. I, I hope you're... I, I feel convicted about this. I haven't always spoken well about those who are in, in leadership in Australia. And I know some of you, I hope some of you feel convicted too. Because this is what God requires of us in response to the gospel that Paul has expounded to us in Romans. This is how you are to respond to what God has done for you in Christ. You are to be model citizens. Now does that mean I can't criticize the government? Is there no room for protest or, or for civil disobedience? And what if the state misuses its God-given authority and instead of promoting good and punishing evil, it punishes good and promotes evil? What then? What if the state commands what God forbids and forbids what God commands? We're getting very close to that in Australia today, I think. 
What then? Think, think for, of the recent uh, abortion legislation that's just gone through the state parliaments. Or the legalizing of, of same-sex marriage, or, or what's happening in Victoria with regards to the so-called conversion therapy thing. Do we just go along with that? Of course not. You see, the authority of the government is a delegated authority. It's given by God. And when the state insists on what God forbids, then we must obey God rather than men. See, when that happens, we've moved, uh, we've moved out of Romans 13 and we've moved into Revelation 13, haven't we? When that happens. And the state is now no longer the servant of God. It has become the beast from the abyss. It has become the servant of Satan. And we must obey God rather than man and, 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 and suffer the consequences. Because there are consequences. For some it will mean losing your job. We're close to this, I think. I'm not just talking about Presbyterian ministers who might uh, you know, get fined for not marrying same-sex couples. <laughs> I'm talking about teachers and doctors and nurses. I'm talking about anybody, really, who tries to live a consistent Christian life. So whatever regime, this is the point, first point, whatever regime you're living under, whatever system of government, was it, uh, it, was, uh, it was Churchill, I think, who said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. <laughs> we, 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 we feel ourselves to be fortunate to be living in a democracy. Not everybody has a vote around the world. But whatever government you live under, whether it's a in, a, in a liberal democracy like ours, or whether you're living on a totalitarian regime like so many Christians around the world, whatever, whatever government, whatever regime you live under, look up and recognize the ultimate authority. The powers that are there have been put there by God. <clears throat> and then in verses 8 to 10, Paul turns from the state uh, to society. Uh, he turns from the institution or government of government to the individuals with whom we're surrounded every day of our lives. He moves from rulers to neighbors. And you see what he says there in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. In other words, pay up. That's the second directive he gives us. Pay your debts. Be a contributor to society. Give, don't take. Let no debt remain outstanding. But there is one debt that you'll never be able to fully pay, he says. That is the continuing debt to love one another. A number of years ago, uh, the social critic Dennis Prager was uh, debating the Oxford atheist philosopher Jonathan Glover. Uh, he said, if you, Professor Glover, were, were stranded at the midnight hour in a desolate Los Angeles street, and if, as you stepped out of your car with fear and trembling, you were suddenly to hear the weight of pounding footsteps behind you, and you saw ten burly young men who had just stepped out of a dwelling coming towards you, would it or would it not make a difference to you to know that they were coming from a Bible study? Amidst howls of laughter from the auditorium, Glover conceded it would make a huge difference. You bet, he said. And that's kind of Paul's point here, isn't it? 
See, our beliefs control our behavior. If we have received mercy, and oh, how, how we have received mercy, that's what chapters 1 to 11 is all about. If we have received mercy, we will show mercy. If we have been loved by God in Christ, we will be lovers of others. The gospel will make us not only good citizens, but good neighbors. Let me, let me give you an extreme example of what that might look like. What, if the state government, for example, puts an ex exclusion zone around abortion clinics, I know that's happened in the past, I'm not sure if that's still in place, but if the state government, uh, in its wisdom, decides to put an exclusion zone around uh, abo an abortion clinic, what should we do about that? Should we get out our placards with the scripture verses on and march up and down protesting outside those abortion clinics? Is that? I'm not saying necessarily that you shouldn't do that, but I don't think that's the wise thing to do. And I don't think that's the loving thing to do. If the government uh, puts an exclusion zone around an abortion clinic, what we need to do is make sure that our, our church here at, at Seoul is an inclusive community. That it is open to those who are struggling, who want to keep a baby, don't want to lose or give up a baby. Now, that's, that's not easy. That costs money. That involves... Uh, Rethinking our, 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 our priorities, doesn't it? It means rescheduling, rescheduling our time. Uh, it means putting ourselves out. Which is how it's, it's how Christians have always behaved in an anti-Christian world. We overcome evil with good. That's what the early church did. It, it's why the gospel spread so rapidly in those early centuries. Just in Martyr writing in the second century says, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. That's radical. That's radical Christianity. Clement put it like this, again another early church father, describing the person who's come to know God. He says, he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows that he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. That's what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Die to self. It's a me, me, me world that we live in, isn't it? Jesus says, take up your cross and die to yourself. When a devastating plague swept across the ancient world in the third century, Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick, which they did at the risk of contracting the plague themselves. Meanwhile, pagans were throwing infected members of their own families into the streets even before they died in order to protect themselves from the disease. So, so look up. In these frightening times in which we live, look up, recognize who's in control. God is sovereign. God is still on his throne. He's given us uh, government. He's given us law and order to uh, restrain evil 
So look up. God is in control and pay up. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Hopefully one day you'll pay off your, your mortgage and your credit card and your student loan. But this debt will still be outstanding to love your neighbor as yourself. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army when he was very old, was preparing his annual Christmas message uh, to salvationists all around the world. In those days, of course, communication was by telegraph. And you paid for every word, I think every letter that you sent. Times were tough and the army was short of money. So William Booth sent a one-word telegram. The word he sent was others. Others. That's the message that Paul is spelling out for us here, isn't it? Look, look at verse 8. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That is the debt that is outstanding. The debt that we will never be able to fully pay. Whoever loves others. Isn't it interesting the way that Paul brings uh, law and love together here, by the way? The commandments. He talks about the commandments. I remember one Sunday school kid calling them the commandos. The ten commandos. It's not a bad mistake to make, actually. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not... These are the Ten Commandos. These, this is what protects our society from anarchy. The Ten Commandos. <laughs> and whatever other command he says there may be, it's all summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see what he's saying? The law gives content to love, do you see? Otherwise, it's, it's too nebulous. You, you can't get your hand around it. It becomes a touchy-feely thing. You know, people, two people uh, living in adultery. They say, oh, but we love one another. We're not doing any harm. The law saves us from that kind of sentimentality. You shall not commit adultery, it says. One of the Puritans uh, illustrates it like this. He talks about hitting the target. It's an old illustration. In order to hit the target, he says, you, you need gunpowder to fire the gun and a barrel to direct the bullet. And if love is the gunpowder, law, then law is the barrel. Love, that love that is shed abroad in our hearts, the, the love of God in Christ, if love is the gunpowder that propels the bullet, law directs it. See, what are we aiming for? Well, the target is there in verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. And, you know, this, this couple I just mentioned, you know, they're living in adultery, and they, uh, we don't see any harm in it. We're not harming anyone. <laughs> the law gives the lie to that, doesn't it? Think of, think of all the, the social engineering today. People messing around with sex and gender and redefining marriage and family. Are we free to do that? God's law is there to protect us from that. Friends, society doesn't owe us anything. We owe it to those around us to, to, to speak the truth in love and to show people what the love of God in Jesus really looks like.
So look up, Paul says, and then pay up. And then finally wake up, which is probably the good thing for me to say to you. <laughs> uh, wake up, verses 11 to 14. Don't you know what time it is, he says? It's high time uh, to wake from your sleep. Uh, what are you doing wandering around in your pajamas at this time of the day? Uh, if you've had teenagers living in your house, it's not an unusual sight. Uh, you know, it's quite a familiar sight, that inert lump under the bedclothes and the alarm has gone off uh, at least six times and, and, and mum has shouted up the stairs, time to get up. And dad has come up with a jug of water and poured it over you and you rub the sleep out of your eyes and you say, is that the time? <laughs> or, or you become so totally absorbed in what you're doing, you're a good kid, you don't stay in bed in the morning, you've got projects to look after and, and, and you're so totally absorbed in what you're doing and, and someone, when someone interrupts you, you say, I didn't realize how time was getting on. That's the picture here, isn't it? See, that, that's what Paul is warning us about here. You can be so absorbed in the life of this world and the politics of this world and all the rest of it, even with the legitimate things, and not realize the time. It's interesting to compare these, these verses that we've got here in chapter 13 with, with chapter 12. There are two pictures of the Christian in these two chapters. In chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, you've got a beautiful picture of the Christian full of love, aglow with the Spirit, rejoicing in hope, practicing hospitality. That's the picture you want to put on the piano, isn't it? That, that's the picture you want as your profile picture on Facebook, don't you think? That's the picture we'd like to have for our soul church profile, don't you think? Full of love, aglow with the Spirit, rejoicing in hope, practicing hospitality. But there's another picture of the Christian here in these verses which we, 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 you don't want anyone to see. It doesn't bear the light of day. Verse 13, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy, quarreling. Are we talking about the same bunch of people? Well, the shocking thing is we are. I mean, are these people Christians at all? Well, they must be. Notice what he says. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. I remember seeing an ad for a dry cleaning company once which read like this, if your clothes are not becoming to you, they should be coming to us. <laughs> if you're not living a life that is showing off Christ, becoming to him, if you're not living a consistent Christian life, Paul saying, wake up. Don't you realize that Jesus is coming back soon? Do you, want to find him? Do you want him to find you dressed like this? It's ironic, isn't it, that uh, people think of Christianity as so old-fashioned, but it's sin that's old-fashioned. It's so yesterday. The time is coming, Paul is saying, it's almost here when righteousness, love, and integrity will be all the fashion. So take off those filthy clothes and put on Christ. This, this was... Uh, what convicted and converted St. Augustine. You know the testimony of St. Augustine? He was a, he was a disgrace. <laughs> he had a praying mother, Monica, his mother, prayed for him regularly. As a young teenager, he just uh, ran riot. He, uh, 
He had the benefit of sitting under the best preaching in the world at the time, St. Ambrose of Milan, who was the Bishop of Milan. He, he heard the best biblical preaching that was available at the time. Uh, it was just like water off a duck's back. As a young man, he, he wrote in his, in his diary, uh, he confessed that uh, he used to pray for chastity. Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> he had an illegitimate child. He had numerous affairs. And then one day, he was sitting in a garden in Milan, and he heard a couple of kids playing in the next garden, some sort of game. Tolle lege, they were saying. Tolle lege, take up and read. That was the, that was the refrain. And those words came over the garden fence to Augustine as if they were from heaven itself. And he, he took up a Bible that he had, a New Testament, and he opened it to Romans chapter 13 to these very verses. I don't know. Yeah. I was going to say, you, you probably thought this afternoon before you came out, what am I going to wear to church? I'm looking around, I don't think you probably gave it too much thought. <laughs> not that sort of church, is it? <laughs> but one of these days, you're not going to get up to go to church. You're going to get up to go into eternity. I, I, my last word to you is this, don't be found dead without Jesus. Put on Christ. Be clothed with him. Let people know whose you are and to whom you belong. So that when he returns, you won't be found doing anything that will not bear the light of day. Let me pray. <coughs> Almighty God, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Pour your love into our hearts and draw us to yourself. And so bring us at last to your heavenly city where we shall see you face to face through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <laughs>